still be able to be together via being here in person or online and via, through our video uh, system. And thank you, by the way, uh, for all those who are here too. Um, I just was actually uh, take, getting ready to take my mask off and thinking, you know, I don't enjoy wearing the mask. <laughs> it's hard to sing with the mask on. Uh, it gets spoiled in some ways being up front, being able to sing without a mask. So I just was recognizing uh, the sacrifice, though it is a very light momentary affliction, but it is a real one to be here, to worship together, to, to wear your masks and to go through this with us. So thank you. Thank you for your patience and, and your endurance for, for a good reason. Well, I'm going to take time today to step out of our series. We'll, we'll be going back into our First John series, completing that in uh, January, and then uh, taking a little uh, mini-series on the kingdom of God uh, in February, I think. And then after that, we'll be in Ecclesiastes, just to let you know what's up ahead. But for today, I want to talk uh, about the new year and, and bring you a message related to this new year. So we'll be looking at Luke 18. You can be turning there. And we are at the end of our year. This is the last Sunday in the year 2020. It's been quite a year, hasn't it? Uh, not too many years when the whole world uh, more or less shuts down from a global pandemic. The last time was actually 1918, um, into 1919 a little bit. And I wonder what it felt like to be alive as they went into 1919 or 1920 and, and looked back at what had happened. Um, I think that 2020 probably has hit us harder in terms of how we feel than it hit them. Um, though they went through a much more serious pandemic, the, the effect of the Spanish flu was the death of over 3% of the whole population uh, of uh, at least the Western world. That would be, if, if it was 3% here in the United States, that would be the equivalent of 10 million people dying uh, right now. So it was quite a pandemic that hit them. Um, and I still think, though, that it hits us a little harder, at least emotionally. I think part of that is that we are surprised by adversity. We live in a time where adversity is more surprising to us. And so a year like 2020 just feels like quite an epic year. Um, we are healthier, wealthier, and more stable politically than ever perhaps in human history, um, at least this side of the fall. The average life expectancy in 1918 was about 48. The average life expectancy now is 78, 30 years we've gained in a century. The average earnings, counting for inflation and counting, and counting all benefits, are three times what they were in 1918. So we are three times as prosperous, uh, relatively speaking, as they were in 1918. The average home size per person is doubled. Just think about it. Uh, for many of us, our grandparents, at least my grandparents, grew up in two-family homes. That was back when they had eight or ten kids. Those two-family homes that are so common throughout New England have usually two bedrooms. So you had a family with eight kids uh, in two bedrooms. Uh, and that's what they grew up in. And, and yet we have our large homes. The death rate from international violence today is a thousandth of what it was in 1918. Um, that's not just because of World War I. Uh, it was all what was going on throughout the globe. So we live in this time where, where things are, are much better in terms of health and wealth and political stability. And, and so a year like this can feel really heavy for us. But the Bible actually 
tells us very plainly that we should expect trouble in this life. That to live in this world, this side of Christ's return, involves going through tribulation. It's through many trials that you'll enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. It's a promise. That's a, you know, we love the other promises of Jesus. Well, that's one of the promises. Is In this world you will have trouble. And so as we think about 2020 and as we think about the coming year, I think we need to recognize that we live amidst adversity. Now, I'm not predicting that there'll be great adversity this year. I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly what will happen. But the Lord wants us to live in this reality and to know how to live, what to do. And I could take a lot of time to look at a lot of scriptures that talk about this reality. The whole counsel of God prepares us well to live amidst adversity. What I want to do in particular is focus in on one very concrete aspect of living amidst diversity. So the goal here in this message is to help us think about and live out uh, our Christian life in adversity. And I want to address just one particular area of living amidst adversity that's a really important area, and that's prayer. So the, the question I'm answering with our text and my teaching today is, is how do we pray in hard times? How do we pray in hard times? And Jesus gives us very specific teaching on this. In the context of speaking about the end time tribulations that would come, Jesus says this is what you ought to do in terms of prayer. And that's what our text is about today. And, and it's not just about Jesus teaching his disciples. It's about God, through the Holy Spirit, teaching us how to pray in hard times, how to live in hard times, how to think about our hard times to orient ourselves. So I trust the Lord wants to work in us today through his words. Let's pray and ask him to do just that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've not been surprised by 2020, that you knew what was going to happen, and Lord, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You're with us, and we overcome that other part of that promise from you, Jesus. You say, Take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I pray, Lord, now as we look at your word by your spirit, you would equip us and help us to take heart and to live out in you what you call us to, to live in, in light of the adversity, but more importantly, in light of you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? On earth. I want to dig into this passage and 
learn about praying in hard times. There are three things that we learn from this passage. If we want to learn how to pray in hard times, we're to pray like the pesky widow. We're to pray like we expect justice. And thirdly, we are to pray like we're in it for the long haul. Three points. Pray like the pesky, the pesky widow. Pray like we expect justice. Pray like, it, like we're in it for the long haul. So first, praying like a pesky widow. Jesus tells the story and then says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And what does that unrighteous judge say? He, he says that he will respond to this widow who keeps bothering him. It's interesting, the judge doesn't say, I will respond to this widow because she's needy. I will respond to this widow because it's my duty. I will respond to this widow because I'm compassionate. He says, I will respond to this widow because she is pesky. She's persistent. She doesn't stop asking. She doesn't stop bothering me. Interesting. Interesting teaching, and it's really amazing. Jesus says this and teaches us this. We like to focus, I think, on the aspects of, of God hearing us and because he's gracious, because we're his children. Those are really important things. We, we love to wrap our, our lives around these promises of grace. We love the, the reality that salvation, being rescued from our sins and reconciled with God, is a pure gift of grace. There's nothing that we bring to that gift. It's all of him. We simply receive it. We love that appropriately so. We love thinking about all the undeserved blessings that we receive. We tend to avoid the, the, the thoughts that we have to work for anything for God. And, and, and in many ways, this is really important and right to understand that it is by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. But this passage is not coming at things from that particular perspective, though it is the background. It doesn't say let go and let God. It doesn't say don't pray with many words because God already knows your need. It doesn't say he has all good things prepared ahead of time, so simply walk in them. Those things may be true and very important, but it's not the truth that this parable is aimed at. Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. The unrighteous judge says, I will answer because this woman is pestering me. Now, just in case you have any doubt, I am 100% convinced of the truth and need of salvation through grace alone. There is no earning of God's love and favor. It is a gift. And it's a gift that comes from His love and grace alone. He doesn't see something in us that earns us something with Him. This is important. But it also is important to understand that God uses means. That God uses means to accomplish his gracious purposes. He uses certain vehicles, certain things that he's instituted to accomplish his purposes. And there's always means involved. The means of words, the means of, of the church, the means of, of reading the Bible. There are always means involved, and one very important means, this is what Jesus is getting at, is the means of persistent prayer. So this passage is calling us to recognize that God uses our prayers 
to accomplish his gracious purposes. It's still of grace. It's still only because he's gracious and good and merciful. But he chooses in his sovereign plan to use the means of prayer, of your prayers, of your pesky prayers. Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now, it isn't just here in Scripture that we find this principle. We can look elsewhere. And always good to to cross-reference other passages. So there are Lots of passages I could go to, but I'm going to just look at two today. One other example in Scripture is the example of King Joash. I don't know if you know the story. It's in, it's in 2 Kings chapter 13. King Joash goes to the prophet Elisha, who is near the end of his life. Elisha is a great prophet, and when Elisha is on your side, you're doing well. And so the king realizes, oh no, what am I going to do without Elisha? The enemies of the, of the kingdom of Israel are going to come against me. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 13, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Now, What's going on here is Elisha is a prophet, and this is a symbolic act of faith that he's calling Joash to. And it represents Joash's response to what God's saying. And Joash's response is uh, not to respond as enthusiastically and earnestly as he ought to have. And so when Elijah says, strike the ground, Joash would have understood this is all about the victory. And so Joash kind of pathetically just strikes three times. And Elisha says, you should have hit it five or six times. You should have actually kept on hitting the ground with those arrows because your response here is proportional to what God's going to do in terms of conquering your enemies. So Joash's response determined the degree of God's answer. Isn't that interesting? God wants persistent, pesky, enthusiastic prayer from his people. He wants you to ask again and again and again. He doesn't want you just to ask three times, but five or six or seven or a hundred times for that thing, that good thing. That's what that teaches us. We see elsewhere as well. Paul did a little bit of an echo with with the uh, sound system, so I'm not sure why. Uh, Exodus chapter 32, we see another example. Uh, It's one we went through recently. And this is a place where actually God incites Moses to be like the pesky widow. Incites Moses by his actions and response to be like the pesky widow. And so what happens in the storyline is is Moses is up on the mountain with God 40 days and 40 nights. And while he's away, the people of Israel commit terrible blasphemy by creating graven images to worship instead of God. Now, it's particularly... Heinous because 
They have seen God work in great power. They've seen Him work through the ten plagues against Egypt. They've seen the pillar of fire and smoke by night and day with them. They've seen the Red Sea parted. They've seen God supply water and manna and quail. They've heard the very voice of God from the mountain. This has all happened. They've all experienced this amazing revelation of who God is. And with that voice from the mountain, God said, do not make any graven image. They just heard it. And what happens when Moses goes away? They say, well, we don't know what's happened to this fellow Moses. Let's make these false gods. And so they make the golden calf. And that's where the storyline picks up. Let's uh, follow that in Exodus 32. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of, up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, well, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger, and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. In all this land that I promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster they had spoken of bringing on his people. A fascinating passage. Certainly, it is right for God to be upset and angry about what has happened. But this goes beyond that because God is actually talking about killing everybody but Moses. And so you, you look at it and, and you look at all of Scripture and you think, did God just kind of lose it here? Did he kind of go off his rocker here in Exodus 32? What's happening? And Moses could have responded by saying, your will be done. But he didn't. And if we back up, we, we, we can look at the rest of Scripture and we know that God's character, he's a God of mercy, he's a God of promise. And this is what Moses does actually. He, he reminds God of his character, of his promises, of, of, of the impact of what this would do for his reputation and, and for what he wanted to accomplish through his people. Moses reminds God of the things that are true about God. And, and, and we must understand, of course, God is always the same. He doesn't change. God did not have a temper tantrum here. God is doing something that we might not see right away. But if we back up and first just look at the story of Moses, we can see that in Moses' life, he started out and he didn't care a whole lot about the people of God and the purposes of God. He cared a lot about himself. And the storyline of Exodus it follows many threads, but one is the development of Moses from a, a selfish, self-doubting person to a servant, a humble, meek man. And this is part of that development. God is inciting Moses to be like God himself. And we can back up even further and look at the storyline of the whole Bible and recognize that Moses is a type ultimately of Jesus. 
Because Jesus intercedes for undeserving people who have rebelled against God. And who God by perfect justice could annihilate and be just and be good. And yet Jesus lays his life down for people who are rebellious, for you and for me. To the point of dying on the cross, shedding his blood, offering up his righteousness in our place. He intercedes like Moses does. He's the fulfillment of Moses to rescue us from the just wrath of God. And so what's going on here is God is inciting Moses to be like the pesky widow, to be like Jesus, to be the one who persists in prayer and who asks God for things. He, he incites him by saying, I'm going to do this, Moses, and he knows what Moses is going to do in response. He's sovereign, but he's inciting Moses to seek the promises, to ask God to be like Jesus and to point forward to Jesus. I hope that makes sense. I hope you see how that fits in with the passage in 2 Kings and with our passage today. This is an example to us. The Lord wants pesky widow type intercessors. We are to be like Joash should have been, like Moses was, like the widow is in the story. God wants us to be persistent intercessors, pesky widow-type intercessors. And maybe the difficulties you are facing in life right now are meant to incite you to get you on your knees to ask and to ask again. Maybe the good things you desire won't be granted until you learn to persist and to pray and to not give up, to ask and ask again. Maybe you have not because you ask not. Maybe you have not because you do not persist in asking. Maybe you only have a small portion of the good, godly, kingdom things the Lord would want to do in and through your life because you do not ask for more. Now, I'm not offering this as a somehow secret to prosperity and health because there are greater things that the Lord is after, eternal things. He cares about your health. He cares about your prosperity. But ultimately, I'm talking about the things that are weighty and eternal And so our passage calls us, Jesus calls us to listen to what the unrighteous judge says. He will answer because she's persistent. And we're to be like her, we're to ask persistently, we're to keep asking, we're to be like the pesky widow. We're to ask God to answer his promises, we're to look at scripture and the things that he says, such as what Toby shared in, in prophetic ministry. It's God's desire that all be saved, we ask according to those things promises. We ask for people. God deserves to be glorified. We want the Lord to answer his promises. We want the Lord to shine. We want to ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God deserves to be glorified in New England. He deserves to be lifted up. He he desires all to be saved. He's worthy of the trust of all of our family members and our friends and our neighbors. Promises of Scripture teach us that there'll be a countless number in heaven. So we ought to ask and ask and ask again. The Word teaches us that the bride will be beautiful upon the return of Christ. So we should ask and ask and ask again. The goal of the ministry in Ephesians 4 is the maturity of the body of Christ. Members being added. People coming to Christ being added. Knit in and then that body representing Christ. So we should ask and ask and ask again for these things. 
That's what Jesus is getting at. That is how we pray in hard times. We pray like the pesky widow. And Jesus goes on. And in contrast, of course, the Lord with this unrighteous judge. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And then verse 7, and will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And so Jesus in the story continues to teach on this principle. Listen to the unrighteous judge who responds to the one who is persistent. And how much more will God, who is the righteous judge, answer his elect as they ask, like the widow, again and again and again. And he will not delay. He will answer speedily. He will bring those answers. Ultimately, when Christ returns, but also before that, because the prayer for his kingdom to come and his will to be done isn't just for Christ's return, but it's for his kingdom now. So this answer is to come now and in the future. We're to cry out, we're to expect true justice. Now, it's probably important for us to back up a little bit and talk about this idea of justice. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? I think we need to understand what justice is. Justice is simply what is right, what is appropriate, what is deserved, what is fitting. And there are different aspects to justice in that. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we look at ourselves and we look at Scripture and we think in line with justice, we have to first understand that true justice demands not blessing for us, though God is a God full of blessing, but punishment for our falling short of what's right. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to do justice. To do justice first means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. He has made everything. Every good thing comes from Him. He's only been good, always. He's glorious, and He deserves all of our lives, all of our affections, all of our thoughts, all of our energies, all of our obedience. And so we've failed to do justice with God Himself. That's the root cause of all other injustice. But we've also failed to do justice to one another. To simply love one another as we love ourselves. That's, that's the bottom line of justice. And so true justice on God's part means he can't sweep that under the rug. He must address that. And, and we can be so quick to demand justice to be done in, in the right way for us. To, to be treated appropriately by others. And not see that we ourselves have fallen short. And, and I think on judgment day he will simply just use our own words to condemn us because we all know the standard. And the standard that we use on others will just be used to ourselves. And we'll realize that we're falling short. It's hard for us to see these things, right? Just like the, the stat that 80% of drivers think they're better than, than average. Can't be possible, right? No more than 50% could be better. In terms of, of eternal things and, and earning heaven, 80% of people think they're going to heaven. But then when you ask them what they think about their friends as a whole, they say, well, probably only about 60% of them. You can't have it both ways. So if we're going to use the measuring stick uh, that we use for others, we have to use it for ourselves. And if we do that, we'll recognize that we've fallen short. And the penalty of sin is death. To be cut off from the Lord. Spiritual exile. And to ultimately live in that forever with deep regret. 
That's the wages of sin. But God in His mercy, in His love, because we have a Moses-like figure greater than Moses, who has laid His life on the line for us, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, through faith in Him, we are forgiven of these shortcomings, these tremendous shortcomings. Because He paid for them on the cross in His death, and He offered up in its place His righteousness, His perfection. He has been faithful. He has earned God's favor in every way. He's only pleased the Father. And so, as this great intercessor that He is, in Him, through faith in Him, we are forgiven and counted righteous. So true justice is addressed in Jesus. But there's another aspect that Jesus is getting at here because this justice that He's speaking of here has to do with the justice of God's promises of blessing for His people. And we need to recognize that ultimately that's only true for us because Jesus is the only true Israel. He's the only faithful one. He was righteous and He deserves all the blessings. He's earned the inheritance promised. And the amazing thing is, is we now belong to Him and we are counted as sons and daughters and we are heirs to this inheritance as well. It's amazing. That's what grace is. Uh, it's, it's, it's removing our sins, but it's also giving us an inheritance in Christ. And so we pray for the kingdom to come and His will to be done. We pray for true justice. We pray for the promises to be realized. We pray for the inheritance to come about. We pray that Christ's rule will be on all the earth and that all will bend their knees and confess and worship and love Him and fall under His reign. We pray for that justice. So, so that is what this justice is speaking of. There's the justice of what we deserve and punishment paid for by Christ, now this inheritance and the justice of that. And he promises that he will act speedily. He will not delay long over them. He's taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, this is oriented towards the final kingdom, the fulfillment, but it's also oriented to now. That prayer from Jesus is not just about praying thy the kingdom come when you return. We'll take time in the mini-series on the kingdom to talk about this, but the kingdom is already and not yet. It's now and future. And so the crying out and being a persistent prayer like the pesky widow is about praying for the kingdom to come now as well. And He is a God who hears us as we persist, as we ask, as we strike the ground again and again and again. He responds. And let me give just a few examples of how he's doing that. In case you're thinking, well, it's only, only the final answer. We've seen it in history again and again. Our very country is founded on his answer to these sorts of prayers. A large portion of those who first settled this area came here because they were fleeing religious persecution in England. They were being persecuted, they had their adversaries against them. And they were praying and seeking the Lord, and the Lord gave them provision in Plymouth Colony and Massachusetts Bay Colony. And a new country was born out of an answer to these sorts of prayers. It's happened before. That's amazing. And so the foundations of our country came from those things. We've seen it in history. I, I believe that, that World War II hinged on the, the intercession of God's people. Now, I don't know for sure. I'm going to 
We'll find out in heaven, but if you study the history of World War II, there are so many pivotal moments that could have gone so easily one way or the other. And I trust that God's people were interceding for God to have mercy and to work. And God in His sovereignty responded. That war turned in the right way. We are seeing in our time, our generation, amazing gospel progress in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And there were generations that went before us who prayed and persisted and labored and didn't see fruit. Didn't see really much fruit at all. And yet here we are in our generation seeing about 2.7 million people per year becoming brand new followers of Christ. Not, not growing up in the faith, but, but actually converts who were previously not believing something else, not believing Christianity. Hundreds of thousands of new Believers among Islam every year. The Christian population of China going from uh, 4 million in 1949 to 100 to 300 million, depending on who you ask right now. Africa going from 9 million Christians in 1900 to 380 million in the year 2000. The country of Nepal, we have missionaries there going from zero Christians in 1950 to 3 million, mostly all in the past 10 to 20 years. We're seeing answers for the kingdom to come and justice to be done now. And there's so much more work to do, more kingdom righteousness to come. And God wants to answer our prayers as we persist, as we ask, as we do not give up to believe God, to ask Him and to not faint and not fail. Adversity would if we don't respond to it right, cause us to want to give up. I just want to be done. I want out of here. And what the Lord is saying is, no, don't do that. Persist. Be like the widow. Pray and ask and ask and let the adversity and, and let the, the harshness of the world prompt you to ask the Lord to work, to bring new life, to bring faith in Christ, to bring the impact of Christianity to the whole world. We are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray for this here in our church, King of Grace. Pray it among the churches in this area. Pray it for New England. Pray it for your own personal holiness. Pray it for your marriage. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends, your work, your neighborhood, your small group. Pray for the mission of our church. Ask the kingdom to come in all these ways. Ask the kingdom to come over every square inch of creation that is rightfully under the, the king himself. All authority in heaven and earth has been given Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples, he says. This is, this is how the kingdom progresses, by the way, as disciples are made, as people come to faith in Christ. And they come under the, the gospel, the good news, and they, they believe that good news, and they learn a new way of living, of love, of love and obedience to the Lord. The kingdom extends that way. And the Lord desires that his, his rule and reign would extend to all peoples, and through his people, affect everywhere they go. So let's pray for the effect of the kingdom on music, the arts, literature, business, the economy, politics, foreign policy even, education, science, technology, technology. Law, philosophy, every aspect. Now, in this world you will have trouble. And it may be as we pray for the kingdom to come, we do see it come among his people. And it may be that we get killed for trying to do these things. But let's keep on praying and pursuing and being like that pesky widow who asks and asks according to the word of God. We pray like we expect true justice.
We pray like the pesky widow. And finally, we pray like we're in it for the long haul. Jesus finishes this teaching by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? When He comes back to conquer the final enemy, death, will He find faith on the earth? Will He find that people have persisted? That they have worked through adversity, asking and believing God, praying the promises, depending on God? He'll come back at the end when all things are done, when the, when the gospel has gone to all nations. He'll come back. Will he find faith on the earth? We have every reason to persist. We're called not to give up until he returns, until the work is done. We have every reason to persist. We have all we need. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's with us. He's always there. He's given us his word. It's living and active. It feeds us. He's given the Holy Spirit who lives in us, gives us a new nature, a love for His law. Insight into the Word. Produces fruit in, his, in our lives. Qualities like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He gives us local churches to be a part of where we're knit together and supported and built up. He gives His church gifts. He cares for His whole church. He gives us leaders. He gives us ways to strengthen us. Worship in song, sacraments. He meets our physical and spiritual needs. He uses all things for good. He's sovereign. He's with us. He's given us all these things so that we would persist and not give up. Will he find faith on the earth? How do we deal with adversity? We pray. And we persist and we pray like we're in it for the long haul because we see the promises of God. Because He's with us. Because we know He's doing something that, that's eternal and glorious that will endure forever. In 1857, a deposit of silver and gold was discovered near Virginia City, Nevada. Henry Comstock was one of the first claimants on the mine. He bought it by trading a blind horse and a bottle of whiskey. And then he sold it shortly after that for not that much money, about $10,000, which in that day would have been a good amount. The mine was later named for Comstock and produced over $3 billion worth of silver and gold. If Comstock had kept the mine and managed the money properly, he probably would be a name alongside Rockefeller and others. But he sold it too early. I bet he wished he had been in it for the long haul. So it is with us. And yet our reward is more than $3 billion worth. Lives rescued. The glory of God displayed. An eternal reward and joy in His presence. Beyond compare. Beyond $3 billion. That's what is the result of persisting. And so we're called to stick it out. To be in it for the long haul. So what do we do in hard times in conclusion? We pray. We pray like we're in it for the long haul. We pray like we expect true justice. We pray like the pesky widow. What do we do in 2021? 
We pray these ways. And the Lord will be pleased to answer us, either sooner or later. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. And I pray, Lord, you'd make us mature disciples who know how to live out this parable by your grace. Make us a people who pray and ask and don't give up. Lord, I pray you bring to mind even for your people certain things that you're calling them to ask for and not give up. I pray you'd encourage your people if there are things they've given up on that are good things, according to your word, that they would pray once again and not give up. And Lord, we ask you, we look to you to answer. You promise to answer. We can't control that, but you promise to answer. So make us people who ask and expect answers and who are in it for the long haul by your grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.